Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Digital technology has undoubtedly brought many benefits, but it has also come with growing threats to our privacy, our families and businesses, our mental health, and our freedom. Call it a digital contagion. From cancel culture to fake news, from data collection and surveillance to outright social manipulation, we are bombarded by content that some allege influences our behavior and threatens our security and even our livelihood. In this episode, I talk with Michael Matheson Miller, Acton Senior Research Fellow, to discuss his new book, Digital Contagion, 10 Steps to Protect Your Family and Business from Intrusion, Cancel Culture, and Surveillance Capitalism. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Michael Matheson Miller is Senior Research Fellow at the Acton Institute. He is the director and producer of the award-winning documentary Poverty, Inc., the Poverty Cure DVD series, and the Good Society series, and was the founding director of Poverty Cure, an initiative that promotes entrepreneurial solutions to poverty in the developing world. He is the host of the Moral Imagination podcast and is a distinguished fellow at the Birch School of Business at the Catholic University of America. His most recent book is Digital Contagion, 10 Steps to Protect Your Family and Business from Intrusion, Cancel Culture, and Surveillance Capitalism. Michael Matheson-Miller, welcome to Acton Line. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, let's just start with the easy, simple, upfront question. What's your book about? So, my book is about about technology and how to think about technology and and big tech and how to use technology a little bit better. So, um, I essentially argue that Digital technology has come with a lot of benefits. There's a lot of great things that happen. I mean, it makes it easy for us to communicate uh, globally. Um, we're able to do a lot of work uh, that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise, and it has a lot of benefits. But it also comes with some threats, threats to our privacy, threats to our families and our businesses, threats to our mental health, our children, and I would argue to our freedom, as we've seen with uh, things like cancel culture, and that the problems are getting worse. And so there's a lot of discussions about how to handle big tech. You know, Do we need to reform Section 230? Do we need to uh, put different rule of law? Do we need to do antitrust? And there's all these questions, and there's, there's a lot of interesting debates around that. Um, but what I focus on here in the book is really articulating first some of the problems, behavior modification, surveillance capitalism, uh, cancel culture, this kind of intrusion and data collection to our private lives, some of the negative effects of mental health, and then say, then I talk about four ways to think about tech, which we can we can talk about, and some of the common errors I think that we make. Things like, you know, I can't do anything about it anyway, or I don't have anything to hide. Um, and then I go through 10 steps that we can do right now to limit some of our exposure to big tech. Now, it's not a perfect solution. Uh, There's no perfect uh, solution, I think, in digital technology. But I go through those 10 steps of things we can do right now in our own families, with our small businesses, to help, in a sense, create some space uh, for us to think clearly. And in the final chapter, um, I talk about what I call the Tocqueville option, uh, which has to do with really thinking about technology and associations, and that we live in this time of big state, big culture, big tech, uh, big education, and that we need to create 
associations uh, where we can flourish, but that we can't build those associations on hyper-centralized technology uh, that can shut us off or deplatform us. And so that there needs to be, in a sense, innovation both in society and also innovation in technology. But the main theme of the book is just how to think about technology and then 10 steps we can do right now uh, to, to, to instead of just waiting for some time in the future when things get fixed for us, uh, things we can do right now. When you say big tech, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think generally hyper-centralized technology. So Google, for example, um, I mean, Facebook and, and well, Instagram is owned by Facebook and, and, and Twitter as well. But, this, but essentially the, the technology, not just those big companies, but the way where technology it, d- digital technology based on free services take incredible amounts of our data, are always intruding into our, onto our lives, right, our digital lives, using that data then to sell it to, to um, advertisers or to other companies and also use it for themselves to be able to, in a sense, um, direct content to us, some of which is great, but some of which I think a lot of people entered into dic- digital technology under the assumptions of a pre-digital world. And so didn't realize, sometimes we realize, like you're on Amazon, you have your name, it's signed up, you're buying books, you're getting recommendations. It's really clear they're looking at your buying history and they're telling you what to do. But I think when people signed up for things like free Gmail, they didn't realize how much Google was going to use our information, not only to sell us things, but also to sell to other people uh, and to engage in, in really just kind of making our whole life transaction. And, and so what I mean by big tech is not simply like the big firms, but I also mean a centralized approach to digital technology where, in a sense, our, our own private lives and associations have been pierced and that everything is, in a sense, made open to the world and that it also makes us very fragile. So, for example, if you have a small business um, and you use Facebook as your primary means of, of advertising, which a lot of people did. Facebook's very, very helpful for growing businesses. At this point, now you're a little bit fragile because if let's say it turns out that you have private political views that you also share on Facebook, you could get your account shut down, right? Which also puts you in a fragility for your business. Uh, so, so what I mean by big tech essentially is that is that not just the big firms, but this, as I said, centralized approach where we're putting so much of our lives uh, Onto, onto digital places and not realizing that there's actually a price to doing that. To what extent do you think people don't realize that there's a price to doing that? I, I think it would be fair to say when people were just onboarding to this technology, when, you know, if you go back, you know, prior to, I, I graduated from college in 2004 and Facebook was really, didn't come open to everyone until the next year. Uh, but, you know, b- by virtue of being an older millennial, I can remember a time when, you know, technology, uh, computers and the internet weren't a part of my life at all. But also I grew up enough with it to understand, you know, what's going on there. So I, I think it's a fair thing to say that at the beginning people went into uh, kind of a new regime with only the understanding of the old world. Mm-hmm. But we've been living with this for quite a while right now. And, you know, as you point out in your book, there are different services that are more protective of your data, of information about you. And by and large, you know, people continue to use these larger platforms. Um, So I I guess the question is, to what extent do you think 
it really is actually a problem and that people seem pretty willing to use those platforms on the terms that seem to exist. Right. So I think that's a good question. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is um, I do think people are beginning to understand now some of the negatives. So um, especially with the rise of cancel culture. And that's where people, I think, are first seeing this idea, you know, like people are getting suspended from YouTube for having various uh, political positions that aren't that don't align with big tech. People are worried there, but I think there's actually deeper, deeper things. So one is just like the surveillance and the lack of privacy, right? So Shoshana Zavuf, who's a Harvard professor, wrote a book on surveillance capitalism, and I think did people really know? Do even we're starting to understand? It's starting to seep into our consciousness. Like, wait a minute, all of our text messages, all of our phone calls. All of our internet searches, everything is being tracked. I still think that a lot of people, you know, people who spend time thinking about this, like you do, you're a marketer, you think about technology, you are tracking other people all the time, uh, right? Uh, but I'm a tracking lot of people, you right now. Yeah, I know, exactly. So, but I think a lot of people like realize, wait a minute, what's actually happening is that everything I'm being tracked. And then we're also sold this idea like, oh, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. I mean, we're just being sold better goods. So like one of the things I talk about in, in, in chapter two is mistakes we make. Right. And I'll go back to some of the some of the problems that are there. But one of the mistakes is how is this different from advertising in the past? Right. Well, it's very different. Right. So now advertising is not new. Propaganda is not new. But when you looked at a newspaper or a billboard, it wasn't watching you. Now, when you're on a website, your reactions, your clicks before, your clicks after, your purchases, your demographic data, your age, your sex, your weight, you know, when you tend to go online, how you make purchases, your biometric data, all this stuff is being used to create not just commercial like advertisement advertisements to to maybe benefit you. Oh, this is a book I'd like to read, but also in a sense to influence you, right? And so the people like Jaron Lanier have written about this. It's like a Skinner box, right? Um, and Lanier tells a story that I think is, is a good one. Um, uh, and so let me talk about the Skinner box. This is like Pavlov's dog, right? Like you're, you're actually being manipulated through a online collection of data, which gives you a lot of information about the person. And then you can, that can be used in a sense to influence you. And so um, <clears throat> Norbert Wiener, uh, and Lanier tells this story, uh, Jaron Lanier, in, uh, in his talks, and I think he talks about it in 10 Arguments to delete your social media accounts right away, um, that Norbert Wiener was an earlier developer of artificial intelligence and, and, and he d- coined the term cybernetics. And he wrote this book in 1954 called The Human Use of Human Beings. Right, cybernetics and society. And he said, this is cybernetics is the scientific study of control and communication in the animal and the machine. Um, and he was pretty optimistic about uh, tech, of course, but he worried that you know there would be possible negatives of behavior modification. But he said, you know what? It's really not going to be a big problem, right? Lanier tells the story. It's, it's good. I've actually told this story too, Eric, giving a talk. Um, but I want to quote, credit Lanier. It's his story uh, about, so, you know, we don't really have to worry about being behavior modified because in order for us to really be behavior modified, we would have to be constantly attached to a behavior modification device, right? And then you, know, you hold up your, your iPhone and you realize we are constantly attached to behavior modification device. So I think realizing actually what's taking place, I mean, yes, you may be, you know, as a marketer and somebody who uses technology, uh, a little bit ahead of the game. But I think a lot of people are now starting to realize that and some people still like not fully aware of actually uh, what's taking place. And so, and we've seen, you know, recently uh, some uh, reports just in the last month or so from from um, the Wall Street Journal on the negative effect of TikTok on teenagers. We've seen some of the work by uh, 
Jean Twang, I think you pronounce her last name. She wrote a book called iGen and also nar- about narcissism on the effect of digital technology on on um, the emotional lives of teenagers. And then George Gilder, um, who actually is not so worried about a lot of the things I'm worried about. George Gilder also talks about just the lack of security and the lack of privacy with our data, right? And just and how and how this centralized technology is going. So I think that in one sense, we know a little bit more than we used to. But still, when you signed up for a Gmail account, did you really think, wait, they're going to read all my email? They're going to take that data, they're going to have collect, they're going to, if I have a Google Dropbox, I can actually be, you know, it can be looked at and it can be scanned for artificial intelligence, through, through artificial intelligence. And then it can be used. Uh, I could even be shut down if I hold opinions that aren't, uh, say, you know, kosher in, in, with big tech. And I think the last thing I want to say around that. So I think, yes, people are starting to realize it more, but still not enough. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And another Another thing is, you know, the way big tech and the way digital technology, not big tech, I'm sorry, the way digital technology was sold to us was this amazing tool of liberation. It was going to free us. We're going to have, you know, and a lot of libertarians were like, it's going to completely free us. But we didn't think about, well, actually, big corporations and the state can use all this data against you. And and one of the things I also talk about in the book of how to think about it, sometimes, especially people who are libertarian leaning say, you know, I don't care whether companies take my data. I just don't want the state to take my data. I say, sure, (laughs) except that's just the state outsourcing it from a company to a company because if the company has taken all your data and collected it, then the state can get it. And so I think we do need to be worried that all of our information has been collected by us and is used by – and can be used against us if, for example, a company wants to try to behavior modify us or if the regime wants to use it against us. On your last point there – that's a problem with the orientation and the size and scope of the state, Absolutely. isn't it? Because you could go back to a pre-big tech era, a pre-online and internet era, yep. and there's a whole lot of information that you would be providing to private companies um, if you were seeking uh, a mortgage or a loan that have to do with your financial transactions. We're seeing this as part of an argument over whether or not the IRS should be granted uh, the ability to review transactions over $600. Um, that's a problem with the you know, orientation of the state mm-hmm. and the power that we've given it. Because I, I don't think you would make a similar argument to say that, well, it was a bad idea that we were giving as much information over to companies pre-big tech era in order to get a loan or to participate in multiple different kinds of commerce. The problem is not on the information side. It is on the size and scope and power of the state side, right? No, I think it's on both. So – I think that you give a good example. So first of all, yes. So let me say first on the state side. I mean, that's my my worry. So what I share with, say, a libertarian who would say, that's not a big deal. I'm just worried as the state gets it. Now, I'm worried that the state gets it too. And that's why I don't want private companies to just be able to take all of our data without us being aware of it. And now, of course, there's terms and conditions that even the Supreme Court, Justice of Supreme Court, uh, John Roberts, who's chief justice, said, like, look, nobody can understand the the details there of of what you're actually giving away. So, yes, the state, of course, is my bigger worry than corporations, to be sure. Um, But it's interesting. You you laid out, right, Eric, you're like, look, what about – 
you know, our loan information or getting a bank loan or whatever. That, sure, there's a lot of things that we still do now where we give a lot of information and those things are held – there's private and there's and – they're, and they're not just easily shareable. What's happened with the big tech revolution – this goes back to what George Gilder talks about, you know, in his book Life After Google is the problem with free services, right? And Lanier talks about this as well, that <clears throat> once things were made free, there has to be a profit model and the profit model – was, as I think it's Tim Cook first said it, that when you're not paying, you're not the customer. You're, you're, the, product. you're the product. And and Zabouf takes it further and says, you're actually the raw material for the product. And so <clears throat> that we're not simply applying for a loan and giving some information to, for a specific element. We are putting our entire lives, our conversations with our family, our friends, our telephone calls, all these things are being collected and data mined. And I think that there's this idea that's sold to us by big tech and sold to us uh, by, by a lot of different people that we have nothing to hide. You know, if you don't worry about it, if you're not doing anything illegal, you, you have nothing to hide. But I, I think, and I argue this in the book, privacy is not about doing something illegal or criminal, right? We have private conversations all the time with our spouses, our children, our friends, right, that we wouldn't have in public, not because they're evil. Right. But but privacy matters to a healthy human life. And so we have something to hide because each of us is a unique, unrepeatable person with hopes and dreams and fears and wants. And this should not be used in a transactional form either to sell us stuff or to later, you know, used by the state. And I remember when a, a while ago, I was actually talking to I was actually talking to our colleague Sam Gregg, maybe about 10 years ago, and I was thinking about all the the data collection that's going on. I thought, okay, and I and I put it in terms of uh, the very famous book by uh, George Orwell, nineteen eighty four, when um, <clears throat> O'Brien had read Winston's private diaries, and he was able to psychologically manipulate him. And I thought, all of our phone calls, all of our private emails, our private text messages are all being data mined, and so that the chance for psychological manipulation by the state or by corporations, for that matter, right, is real. And so m- the point of the argument is. Here, I guess I would say we could have debates about, you know, how good is this? How bad is this? I know you're a lot – you're kind of skeptical, which I'm happy to do this interview because it's better to have somebody who's skeptical of the book interviewing you than somebody who, who likes it. But <clears throat> the reality is we are giving incredible amounts of information to companies um, that they're using that data to make a lot of money. Uh, they're using that data to, to manipulate us. They're using some of the money to engage in political ideas that a lot of us well, don't back, like. Back no, 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 let me finish. And, and, and my point is this. Look, if you want that, just keep using Gmail. Do it. But my point is if you don't want that, if you're bothered by it, if you're something sensing, you know, man, something's wrong here and I don't like what's happening, um, <clears throat> there's two ways we can think about it. We can wait for long-term political and economic reform. We can wait for trust busting or we can wait for reform of Section 230 or we can wait for you know some crony capitalist regime where Facebook writes the regulations. Or we can say, well, I can't solve the problem perfectly. Right. Right. And we can talk about how I, I talk about it. It's not, you know, don't think of it as an apocalypse, right? Just think of it as a bad storm. And here's 10 things you can do right now to at least minimize what you're giving and create a little bit of space of privacy around you. And that's where the book is, is that's where the book is, is focused. 
back up to one of the things you said there that they're using this information to manipulate us. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, you know, what, when you think about, say, how, how desire works and how, how ads work, when you're – I'm just saying what people are all – we all want to buy things and we all want things, okay? And what I'm saying, there's kind of different kinds of manipulation. There's debates on like how much manipulation takes place with like political manipulation or getting you to think in certain ways. Uh, somebody was telling me the other day, if you start to Google uh, – it's like – uh, what was the what was the example they gave me? Like, can a man and then it, it auto fills through artificial intelligence have a baby? Right? Can men get married? Like, whatever. So there, there's sometimes they're actually using. Uh, are you gonna? Can you Google it? Because that was an example that they gave me. I'm trying. Somebody gave me. He said. He said, "Here, Google and see what happens." Like, can a man have a baby? And so you actually have children who are online and 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 all this information coming from say leftist politics and the new anthropology of the person is being fed to people through Instagram accounts right so uh, the Wall Street Journal did a story on how TikTok serves up drugs and sex to minors they set up accounts that you can read about it and we can put a link in the show, show notes to this and I had a link to it in my book um, <clears throat> how they set up accounts of 13 year olds and and went in regular ways, et cetera, and noticed how all of the, the content goes into like pornography, into um, into sex and drugs and a host of other things. Well, that's manipulation. That's using technology to bring people manipulated. I mean, when you're a, a 14, 15-year-old boy and you're online, um, pornography is a very expensive, you know, lucrative business. People want to get those 15-year-old boys into pornography. And so you, 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 there's ways to do that. YouTube uses uh, the, the algorithms of what you're watching to give you recommended videos, right? So there's a lot of things going on that, especially young people, but adults, I'm an adult, I'm 52 years old. And the facts are you're sitting there, you're on Twitter, you're on, you're on uh, YouTube, you're making a free decision to go on there, right? So, uh, you know, I, I give this talk at Acton uh, University about uh, the Christian anthropology and human beings are free and we have will. So I'm not denying that, that that our will, that we don't have a will, but I am saying that I think we're unaware of the power of how digital technology, using the data that they've collected, can actually keep us engaged and direct us towards different ways of, of thinking. And a lot of times people will say, oh, well, are you talking about like super, you know, like uh, nationalist right? I'm, I'm not talking about that. I, I mean – that that's that happens too, and 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 you know far left that happens too. I'm just talking about generally speaking a see a way of being engaged with the world, which is not a neutral position, where we're using technology constantly, and that technology is shaping us, it's shaping our wants, it's shaping our desires, it's shaping our our beliefs, and it's also desensitizing us to evil. And so we're being shaped by it. Now, are you also being shaped by television? Sure. That's why you shouldn't watch a lot of television, okay? And so I think a lot of times people say, well, how is this different from things in the past? Well, in one sense, it's not, okay? So you need to stay away from bad stuff, right? <laughs> Period. In another sense, it's because it's using data that it's collected about you, right? I mean, it, I'm saying it, artificial intelligence and people who are banking the, 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 the algorithms and writing the algorithms. And I, I talk about this in, in more detail. Uh, but digital technology is what I mean by it. Uh, because digital technology um, is not is even more than television because it's actually getting information about you. It's directing you towards certain ways. And that's manipulation. Now, is it, does it mean it should be illegal? Uh, that's not what I talk about in the book. What I talk about in the book is 
do you want to be manipulated by digital tech? You're going to be manipulated. You're going to be deeply influenced by it. So my point is, if you don't, here's some things you can do mm-hmm. to well, limit uh, your exposure. Uh, so, so I mean, do, let me put it this way, since you're, you're a critic let's, and we're colleagues, do you think we're not being influenced by digital technology? Do you think like when you go onto YouTube, like you're not, your data isn't being used to, to, sh- to have you watch certain things? Do you think that um, the data you're collect- that's collected on you and the advertisements you get are not they're not – they're just random? Well, like, from my – no, they're certainly not random. But from the point of view of a marketer, I would say my answer to that question would be I wish it were as easy as you're describing it because I can tell you from experience yeah, yeah. of running advertising, of creating advertising, of utilizing so – Facebook is probably the most robust platform that exists out there in terms of you know you can select different categories of users of Facebook in order to serve up ads to all of them. I wish it were that easy. It is just not that easy. Part of it is still coming up with good creative. It is still the old process of advertising, of coming up with compelling creative, something that moves people, something that, um, you know, appeals to really an emotional center in people to get them to potentially take an action that you're desiring that they take. You can have the opinion that in that sense, all marketing is manipulation. Mm -hmm. There are people who have that opinion. I just think that that is um, a a little uh, overly categorically declarative there to say all advertising is manipulation. Um, People do like to be made aware of things that might be a benefit to them. And through uh, the means of marketing and advertising that we have now, we have an ability to serve up things that have a greater likelihood Mm -hmm. of being of interest to them. Um, I noticed when you asked the question, you changed the terminology, which is uh, influence people. So I would say I wouldn't particularly disagree with that, that part of the idea would be to, um, at least from a marketing and advertising perspective, to influence people. I think with regard to things like algorithms and what it is going to serve up to you next, yeah, they're they're trying to show you things that you might be interested in watching. If you're watching one YouTube video and it's uh, – I was watching one for a recipe that I made for dinner last night and it's showing me other cooking shows. It would be – bizarre and weird if it was showing me recommendations for, you know, reviews of anime series or something that I have absolutely no interest in at all. Um, I I think unless we're going to elide a over a difference between influence and manipulate, I, I think at least in people's common understanding you know, how to win friends and influence people. You're looking to influence people. There's yeah. a much more positive connotation to that. But how to win friends and manipulate people has an entirely different connotation to it. Okay. So I think two things. Yeah, I think a couple of points. I'm not saying all marketing is bad, right? Um, and I'm not saying that all influence is bad. I mean, this is what we're doing all the time, right? I mean, in trying to influence people to think our way or to, to do something or sell them something. What I'm saying is that there's levels of influence that are working in ways beyond our understanding because we didn't fully understand what we were giving up when we signed up for free services. And so there's also, yes, manipulation and bad influence. So, for example, I just went to Google Chrome and I wrote, can a man? And the first thing I got was get pregnant. Okay. So is that influence? Is that manipulation? 
What what is that? So what I'm saying is it's not like this I don't goes know, what back is to that? well, I would argue it's it is manipulation. I would argue that it's that what's happening is we sometimes think of digital technology as neutral, which I write about in the book. That somehow it's just like there's digital technology and I write can a man, right? So when you think get pregnant, what's happening is if you're a child, uh teenager and you're looking, can a man get pregnant? Can a man get pregnant? Oh, that's interesting. And then the, what does it say, right? They're going to take you to places where it says, you know, oh, yes, man can get pregnant and there's different things and there's chest feeding and all these things like this. This means that certain political ideas and views or anthropological ideas and views are being sold and and to children in the terms of and the idea of like, oh, we're just looking up, you know, a dictionary from our of, our of our neutral Google search. And that there's another issue of manipulation when you think about how artificial intelligence is used, right? So there's a question of like applying for a loan. But when all of these things are brought in together, there's almost like a social credit score that's developing around people. And that, 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 And the question we have is, you know, this is the reality we live in and we can debate – is influence or manipulation worse and what's going on? But I think the reality is we all understand and we've seen the data that, that our private information is being gathered, collated, and used. And do we want that? And if you want that, then my book is not for you. I mean, it's, you know, uh, if you don't want that, if you want to think about, oh, are there ways I can avoid doing that, then my book is for you. Right, because I, I give ten steps of just a couple of small things we can do to, in a sense, control our data, make sure it's not being collected all the time. Uh, it's not a perfect solution, and one of the things I talk about at the end, in fact, is like part of is how we use technology. So, in the beginning, I said, "Look, I, I visited this um, Amish family's house uh, for dinner, and they're opted out. Right, they're not on digital technology, and and they're they're flourishing. It's fine, but but, not on most technology. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, uh, but but." Most of us can't opt out, so we need to use digital technology in our lives. So the question is, are there ways we can use it better? And I do get into some of the things that, you, that we've been debating here in the book, but a lot of the book is saying – I set out some of the, you know, I give, and I have a lot of links to, to some of the questions yeah, I do, that you've I, asked. I do want to get to some of those recommendations. But yeah, let me just, so, so I go, I do, I do think, I do think, you know, I'm perhaps more worried about the effect of Instagram and TikTok and Google searches and data collection than you are. But, you know, the, the reality is, and if you, let's like read people like Jaron Lanier, right, who, who's worked on this, or you look at the work of, of the uh, Persuasive Technology Lab at Stanford. I mean, they use neuroscience, psychology, and highly sophisticated algorithms to engage us, right, to continue to use their products and to buy different things and to think different things. And, and these things are just happening. And so the question is, how do we want to address them? And if you're worried about them, then I say, okay, here's a couple of things we can do to minimize that. And the, this is where I get back to the Amish family I was going to finish, is that not all of us can opt out. We need digital technology for our life, for our school, for work, for our children, et cetera. So how, how, are, we, how are we going to use it better? And that's what, I wanna, that's what I'm trying to focus on here in this book. And I think, as I said, there are things we can do to, in a sense, reduce it. Some of them actually mean uh, to follow what Cal Newport talks about in his book, Digital Minimalism, is just to reduce our use of digital technology. Right, so I think there's a dual element of reducing our use, and then being more aware of what we're giving. 
not everyone's a marketing professional like you, you know, who's who's on the opposite side. Being aware of like, okay, it, is this what I want the companies to give? And if you want that, to give, then you're fine. But if it's not what you want, okay, well, there are some options, right? So for example, if you don't want all of your searches tracked online, if you, you can use a different browser, like one of the browsers I suggest is the Brave browser. Uh, you can use, if you don't want all your searches twi- tracked, you can use the search engine like DuckDuckGo or Swiss Cows, which doesn't have any pornography on it. So there are ways to use digital technology outside of, say, Google, Facebook, Instagram. And you're, there's not a perfect solution, but if you're concerned with those things, um, the idea somehow that, you know, well, you know, this is just the way it is, and this is the way digital technology is, and we have no choice. We're either going to be online or not. And my argument is, if you're concerned about these things, there are better ways to use technology. And second, there are probably ways to minimize your use of technology. And we don't necessarily need network effects and centralized platforms for everything we do, and that we can actually have decentralized technology and we can have minimal technology to solve a lot of the problems that we're kind of told that, oh, there's a media technological solution for everything. So that's really the focus focus of, of the book, you know, and and that's that's where I but I do think it's important to lay out, and that's why I said these four these four areas of mistakes people make. One, they're like, well, things can't be that bad and we don't want to appear paranoid. I would argue they're bad. You don't think so, but I, I, I think that they're, they're very bad. I think we've seen it with cancel culture, but I think we're also seeing it just with the, the impact of some of well, the Wall Street Journal. I, would, I, would, I have a note here to go ask you a question about that. So yeah. um, just for, to note for posterity's sake, when you uh, click on the Google search for can a man get pregnant, I'll, I'll read you the top return. Yeah, tell me. Um, People who are born male and living as men cannot get pregnant. A transgender man or non-binary person may be able to, however. It is only possible for a person to be pregnant if they have a uterus and continues on from there. Um, okay, so, so just just for – So there you go. Noting that's, what it says there. That's so, manipulates a transgender man. What does that mean? Right. I said at risk – of turning this into a conversation right. about something other than all of that, but you know, but I, but it, I think it is connected, though, right? I mean, it's like a transgender man or non-binary person. That's right in the first result. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, the second result, medical news today. In medical, okay, it says sorry. The third, can men get pregnant? Healthline. Yes, it's possible for men to become pregnant and give birth to children of their own. So I, okay. I, I would say that. From trans dad, that. sorry, you can have, be a man and have a baby. So, so again, when you're a child and you're doing research on biology, and you go and you look about like who gets pregnant, right in the beginning, you're 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 sold a transgender well, man. The, Does what, a transgender man? The question here: What is the parental role in all of this? Right. Oh, very so, important. like you, you were talking earlier Super. about uh, about younger people um, being served up uh, videos of of drugs and pornography on TikTok. Talked about the influence uh, that people are claiming that Instagram has that it's making uh, particularly teenage girls unhappier. I know you did an interview recently with Robbie Suave from Reason, where I, I think his point in, in uh, reaction to that is uh, has merit, which yeah. is to say, if you were to survey both young, you know, uh, high school aged girls and boys about their feelings, like how does high school make you feel? Probably would be depressed. They would think that it's that it sucks because that's just a universal, almost universal experience of uh, of high school. Um, 
I, so I suppose the question is, well, one, what is the parental role in all of this that to avoid some of those things that parents should be better engaged, you know, in the same way sure. that Robbie's experience was similar to my experience, which was I couldn't play video games all day long. There's a certain amount of time. You know, I have uh, a I have children and I monitor the limited amount of usage that we give them of technology. So. It, yeah. There is a pronounced to me parental role there in all of that. And with regard to the Instagram question of you know, what the effect that it has on on teenage girls and all of that and some of the other things you brought up, how much do you think that this is a creating problems versus revealing problems kind of endemic to our human nature and not necessarily the cause of those problems. Okay, so a couple of things. I mean, it's good questions. So first of all, I mean, the parental role is super important. And in fact, that actually goes to partially why I'm writing this book, right? So um, it's 10 steps you can do to protect your family and your business and yourself from digital intrusion uh, and surveillance capitalism. And so part of it is really for parents to read this book, right? So... um, what Robbie Suave was talking about is he's worried about some of the reforms of Section 230 and the, that that would actually make things worse for conservatives. He's worried about some of the breaking up of big tech. He, he thinks that's, that, that antitrust policies maybe are not the best thing. He also, as you know, said, yeah, he's worried about, about – um, uh, some of the negative effects. So he's not denying the negative effects. So I think to be clear and fair to Robbie too, I think his the central point of his argument would be this is a moral panic like we have seen moral panics before of people overreacting to things that yeah, shouldn't merit this kind of reaction. It's funny though. Like, you know, I mean, that's what other people, I moderated a debate with um, Josh Hammer and Carl Sabo and Carl Sabo made this kind of point. Like, you know, everybody was worried that, you know, television was bad. Everybody was worried that movies were bad. Everybody's worried that, and isn't this just a new tool? Well, Technology. There's two, I think, elements to to address there. One is, you know, people said, "Oh, we're going to have some of these some of these technologies and some of these kind of cultural things that people were writing about were worried." Well, they were partially right, Eric. I mean, look at <laughs> look at our culture right now. Look at um, marriage rates and divorce rates and depression and suicide and anxiety and family breakdown. And I mean, like we have cultural problems. And so the one of the weaknesses of Robbie, Robbie's is like, people who are worried, oh, it doesn't turn out to be a big deal. Well, maybe it's actually a bigger deal than we realized. So that's the first thing. I mean, that would take us down a I guess a I'm missing the causal data. link there. Well, I mean, so the thing is, you know, does, do the six, does the 68, you know, kind of revolution and the sexual revolution and then have – impact on us, right? Does rock and roll music desensitize us to certain things? I mean, these are big, deep questions uh, that one of the things you hear people saying is like, oh, everybody's worried that, you know, rock and roll would just create problems. Well, it it did, right? Everybody's worried that television would just create problems. Well, it did. Um, Television was used to desensitize us to a lot of of evil. Television was used uh, for political purposes Television was used uh, for you well, how know, far propaganda. back can you trace the precursor technologies yeah, and the so same technolo- kind of thing, yeah, right? Sure, so it's like cars. the radio was used for all of exactly. this. Exactly, uh, Our- the printing press was used for all Absolutely. of this. Absolutely. So it's- I don't assume you're making a like a pure luddite argument here that we no, should smash no, no. all technology. Of course not. No, no, of course not. But I think you you actually get to the point. So technology shapes us. 
it's not neutral. It's not simply a tool. So let's talk about cars, for example. I like cars. Okay, I drove one here. Um, I don't think we should get rid of cars or smash cars. Um, but the idea that a car is just neutral to society is false. I mean, cars enabled the development of suburbs, right, and roads and, and transformed neighborhoods and transformed the way we're – the way we work and the way we live, right? So, as you said, so did the printing press, so did the radio. Uh, these We know, for example, how radio was used uh, in propaganda. If you've read like Edward Bernays' work, right? Mm -hmm. Edward Bernays, a uh, famous propagandist uh, in World War One uh, and, and afterwards, a public relations expert, you know, using using ideas to, to sell us things. I think, I don't know if you know the, the famous story that Eddie Bernays tells about how he got women to smoke, okay? So women... It, he said, all right, he had a plan. The, the, the um, tobacco companies hired Edward Bernays to get women to, to, to smoke more. And so uh, he said, okay, so he, he, at an at a, at a Easter parade, I think it was in New York in the 20s, he got some debutantes to put cigarettes like right under their dress skirts. And at a certain time, he was going to, he told them, lift up your skirts, take your cigarettes out and start smoking. And so they all did. And he told the press, oh, there's going to be like a, a, a feminist protest here. Like I think it's maybe women's suffrage. I forget all the details. And watch this. And, and, and they're calling it Torches for Liberty. Okay, and so the women smoked, and then they they put smoking, and they placed it. They, they, so they they showed that video, and this became big news about women have you know showing their rebellion. And he also got it placed in television and in movies, and this whole idea of getting people to smoke, and it was a sense of like female liberation from male dominance. Well, it was also just smoker smoking. Uh, tobacco companies wanted women to smoke, and it was kind of a taboo for women to smoke. So they were influenced slash manipulated to get people to smoke. Right? These things are not new with digital technology, okay? This was used in movies. It was used in radio. It was used in press. Propaganda is not new. But digital technology makes propaganda like it, it turns it up to 11, right? Digital, it, it exponentially increases the influence and the effects of propaganda. And so to think oh, well, this is just like newspapers in the past is just a wrong framing of the pro problem. It's not just like newspapers in the past. It can be tailored in ways and sent to you in ways that are much more sophisticated. And so we have to be aware of that. And this goes back to your question of parental control. So yes, I think, as, uh, you know, uh, I, I actually note this in, in the book, Silicon Valley executives are very careful, at least some of them, allowing their children to have phones, and access to digital technology because they know this stuff is very powerful. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is to get people to think and, – and I have lots of links. I think I have 150 footnotes or something in the book just showing you all of the different studies and different things. It's a popular, easy read, but I, I just put a lot of links there because we, we, are, we are now on, in, a, in a new digital technology – that is shaping the way we see the world, shaping the way we engage the world. We've got Mark Zuckerberg with the new metaverse uh, idea of moving us into, into, into virtual reality. This is going to have a profound effect on us. And either we're going to let the technology simply shape us and think it's like nothing in the past, or we can use the technology in ways where we take control, right? And that's so, – so I'm glad you asked me about parental control. Um, it's, it's absolutely – uh, essential, I think, that we don't simply look to the state or to the technology companies to 
look out for our own good, but that we, as uh, free individuals and families and churches and associations, we we use uh, um, our our own agency to take some control of our digital lives back. And and you know this is where. I think it's important to study exactly what's happening and how it's happening, but then also do some of these basic basic actions so that we, in fact, can take control. In the time we have left, uh, of course, we want people to buy your book and they can get the full set of recommendations, the uh, 10 steps that they can take. Uh, what are You had mentioned a couple different browsers. Um, for you, what do you think are the couple most important or most impactful uh changes they can make, steps they can take if um, they're inclined to agree with the the danger that this poses um, and want to protect themselves? What are a couple of the top recommendations yeah, you'd make? I would say, thanks. I would say first, pay for your email, right? You pay for your plumber, you pay for your electrician, pay for your email. Uh, you can get like a service like Proton Mail, for example. It's like $50 a year. I, Proton's not the only one. There's a number of them. I list a couple of ones there. Um, and then and you and they're using what's called a PGP, which is uh, pretty good privacy, where the data is encrypted. When you're paying for your email, this goes. To, I think there's also a question of commerce that relates to the Act Institute uh, here as well. You know, when you when you pay for something, you're in a relationship of commutative justice, justice of exchange, and you're, it's it's not a deep, thick relationship like like a marriage, okay, which is a covenant. It's a it's a thin contractual relationship. But if I'm paying for something. Then there's a mutual joint contractual responsibility. When you get something for free, you're in a sense at at the you know whatever the whatever the guy who's giving it to you for free is, he's in charge. And so I, I use this example. You know, we talked about uh, you mentioned in my bio that I directed Poverty Inc. I mean, go look at what happens to in poor countries when they're given free stuff. They lose agency. So I think first thing, pay for things. Don't don't avoid using free things. Right. Uh, another thing you can think about is using a virtual private network, what's called a VPN. It sounds like it's very complex, um, but you can get one at ExpressVPN or ProtonVPN or Norton. There's different ones. Uh, and essentially, that's really important, I think, also if you're using any public uh, Wi-Fi networks. It just masks your IP address so that your data is not being collected. I think another thing is um, using, I said, a, a browser like Brave. Uh, using DuckDuckGo or Swiss Gauss as your as your as your search engine, and I think owning your own files, making sure whether you're for privately or business, don't just put everything on Facebook. If you have a small business, don't just you, sure use Facebook, use Instagram, use these things, but make sure you own your most important content. So if you do in fact get canceled, you can start up uh, uh, immediately. And one of the examples I use is, you know, we oftentimes think, oh, wouldn't it be great to live in Italy and you know, live abroad, live on a beach. And, and be remote. And, you know, after COVID, a lot of people are becoming more and more remote. I also think we need to look at the inverse, and that's operationally remote, that, that if you have a small business or even a large business, business you, your, your operations are, are – they're yours and they're decentralized so that you're not really at – simply at – um, the you know the 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 whims of, of big tech, and then finally, I, I would say two two last things. One is I, I highly recommend the work of Cal Newport. He wrote a great book called Deep Work. I wish I would follow it more. I'd get more done. Um, and then he he wrote a book called Digital Minimalism, and here he I think is a way to think about how to use technology in a minimal way. 
right, that we're not always going to technology. And the last thing I want to say is um, maybe going back to some of the big, deeper questions about how to think about technology. And this is where I write about this in the book. Computer science is not a purely technical, empirical field that's divorced from political concerns or from an anthropological vision. Anthropology, the way we see the person, shapes the technology we make. And I think we've made the error of thinking of digital technology as somehow kind of like a neutral science. But if you think about what's the anthropology of Facebook? Well, it starts out as you know, we're going to rate girls and their, their, their you know, attractiveness, but also we're going to collect data about people. I mean, this is right there from the beginning. And so the anthropology of Facebook doesn't take seriously the dignity and privacy of, of the human person. And I think, you know, the way we use digital technology, we can think it's neutral. And the example I give is that to deny that digital technology has effect on us is like a teenager who says, like, well, I listen to music, but it doesn't affect me. Or I, I don't listen to the lyrics. Like, it doesn't matter. The music is affecting you. You're a musician. You know that uh, better than I do. The music is affecting you. The architecture is affecting you. Uh, you know, a, a beautiful city is going to affect you in a way that an ugly city is not, right? Um, good technology is going to affect us in positive ways. Negative, bad technology is going to affect us in negative ways. We have to be attentive to technology and don't simply think it's neutral. Um, and so, again, I talk a little bit more about how we can then bring this good technology and get do better technology in our associations in our private lives and not be reliant on Google or Facebook uh, for a tech. But I think it goes back, Eric, to your, your question of what's the role of parents? I think the role of parents, the role of ourselves in making good decisions. And so I'll just conclude with what I started with. Do we need better rule of law around technology? Yes. Uh, am I sure the best way to do this? No. You know, I'm not, I'm not totally sure if uh, reforming 230, how to reform 230, the best way to do that. But what I do know is right now, while we're waiting for those things, each one of us, if you're concerned about this, well, like Eric isn't, if you're concerned about this, <laughs> um, that there are things you can do right now. And I'll outline those in Digital Contagion. Michael Matheson-Miller is Senior Research Fellow at the Acton Institute. His most recent book, which we've been discussing today, is Digital Contagion, 10 Steps to Protect Your Family and Business from Intrusion, Cancel Culture, and Surveillance Capitalism. Michael, thank you so much for coming on Acton Line today. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for the good discussion. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja.